0: Hello there, Meister fan. Good to talk to you today. I am Ben Shank, the host of this wonderful podcast. It is December 19th, 2015, for whoa, 14, not quite yet. December 19th, 2014 for me, and December 30th, 2014. For you guys, some people really get confused with the time discrepancy between when I record and when I release. And people people are like, hey, well, when can I tune into your podcast? When can I listen? And Meister fans, if you wanted to say something annoying to a person who runs a podcast, ask them when you can listen. Because the answer is whenever you want. It'd be like somebody asking, when can I watch that movie on Netflix? You can watch it whenever you want. Now, I am preaching to the choir right now. Thank you for tuning in. If you're listening right now, you know how a podcast works. Anyway, where I was going with this was, I hope it's snowing for you right now, because if it is, this episode is so appropriate. It's Joel Gratz, episode number 82. We're throwing it back. Joel runs opensnow.com, and you're going to learn everything you need to know about snow forecasting. And if we don't cover it here check out Joel's Meister profile page or opensnow.com. Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that
1: one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and
0: being okay with it.
1: You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have.
0: Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your
1: host, Ben Shank.
0: Hello, everyone. Hello, Meister fans. Hello to those of you who are new to this podcast. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Today with me, I have Joel Gratz. Joel, welcome.
1: Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So for the listeners who don't know Joel, Joel is the co-founder of opensnow.com, a website hosting weather forecasts and information with an added flair. They include personable forecasts, live snow reports directly from the hill, custom snow alerts, and many other services to help you find the powder. They started specializing in Colorado, and now they're all over the country. Joel, thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey, any chance to talk about snow is uh, is fun for me. I appreciate
0: it. (laughs) You know, I was told one time in a professional development class that I shouldn't Start a conversation talking about weather, but i 'm guessing in this case it's a it was a good decision right
1: well yeah it is and it's uh it 's a dangerous thing with me and uh, and my girlfriend and my friends know this quite well that when somebody just uh, innocently asked me about some a very simple weather uh, concept that they probably think will be a, a five second uh, answer. It usually turns into five or minutes, fifteen minutes. I'm drawing something on on a whiteboard or in the dirt or something like that. So, uh, yes, it's always been it's always been my go to. And in this case, um, yeah, you should ask me about it. For sure.
0: <laughs> and how cool is that though? That like you get so fired up about weather. And then other people get so excited about other things. I don't know, like bull riding or insurance <laughs> or podcasts. And that's that's your career, and that's our that's my career. I'm a podcaster, and it's awesome. I just think it's so cool that we as humans are so different.
1: Yeah, and it, it's it's fun that we can do what we want to do. Uh, and I'm I am eternally grateful, lucky, what whatever it is that what I have loved to do since I was. Four or five years old is what I get to do now and make a living at, and hopefully get to do for the rest of my life. Um, and it's funny you bring up insurance because I was in insurance. Oh, really? Uh, actually, yeah. So when I I graduated, I went to school undergrad at Penn State for meteorology, came out to Boulder for grad school and did meteorology and an MBA. And I had always kind of thought, hey, I want to do weather and business, uh, because I like both, and I love forecasting, but I didn't just want to be a forecaster, and business was intriguing, but I didn't just want to be running numbers and have no kind of connection to my passion of weather, so I wanted to combine them, and when I graduated uh, uh, from grad school, I got a job at a local company here in Boulder called iCat Managers that did hurricane and earthquake Mm. insurance. Uh, Now, people think that that's pretty ridiculous, that a company in Boulder uh, we we'll do hurricane and earthquake insurance. Uh, of course, we did not insure any hurricanes here. Uh, we did insure a few earthquake um, uh, risks here in Colorado, but for the most part, we did hurricanes in the Gulf and Atlantic coasts of uh, the U.S. and uh, and earthquakes in the Western U.S. But that was—it turned out not a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, insurance. Uh, it was fun. It was interesting. Uh, the people I worked with were great. I had a lot of opportunities there. Uh, but it just, I I love being out in the weather and, and forecasting, uh, kind of more our daily, daily lives, especially around snow, um, than kind of just running, uh, historical weather statistics, which essentially is what insurance people do.
0: Right. Yeah. And I actually interned for a, uh, an insurance company when I was in college and I had no idea how much of an effect the weather can have on profitability and that sort of thing. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, it was um, it was eye-opening to me, and the, the amount of money changing hands yeah. uh, around the world uh, in insurance and reinsurance, which yes. is a fun thing that I had to learn about, and for anybody that doesn't know that's listening, reinsurance is insurance for insurance companies, so yes, it continues uh, on up the chain, <laughs> because if an insurance company has a big loss, uh, they have their own insurance that will will kick in, so... It's uh it's a lot of data it's a lot of mathematical models and the weather plays uh, a really big part in this especially from uh, obviously a hurricane uh, insurance perspective. So, uh, that was, that was fun, but ultimately not, not my, uh, not my career.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the listeners have probably had about their monthly dose of insurance information. Yeah. So yep. That's all, that's all you need to know. That's it. Yeah. Um, when they heard you being introduced as a weather forecaster and this podcast is being released in October, Joel, what do we got this winter? Tell us, <laughs> tell us exactly how much snow we're gonna get and of what weekends we're gonna get it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So January second, I think, is a really good powder day. It's a also big one. February fifth. Anybody <laughs> that's listening that actually thinks that that's a real forecast, um, uh, you shouldn't think that's a real <laughs> forecast. Nobody can do anything like that. You know, this question of the seasonal forecast is interesting because. I, uh, despite writing essentially the same thing at the beginning of the season for the last five years, that seasonal forecasts are mildly worthless, it never, people still ask me, and ask me often, and good friends ask me. I was in uh, Aspen this past weekend, and a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for a while, uh, we caught up, shook hands, walking down the street, and he said, all right, just before you know, we, we, we talk anymore. I just want to, and I knew what he was going to do. He was asking me what the season was going to be like. And I do not know. So, um, the, the reason that I'm so hesitant, um, on these seasonal forecasts is a couple of things. One, over the last five or 10 years that I've been doing this, I've, I've rarely seen, uh, an outfit, a, uh, weather forecasting company consistently predict, uh, consistently accurately predict, uh, long range weather forecasts. So sometimes, uh, companies will be able to look at all the variables and make a somewhat accurate prediction for the upcoming season. But I haven't seen this done consistently. And so when you're right one year or two years, but then not right the next year, it's kind of hard to, to take these things seriously.
0: They're lucky. Uh, They're not skillful.
1: Well, and they might be skillful, but you don't know when the skill, uh, when they have more skill than less skill. That's, mm-hmm. that's the challenge. Um, And and so while there might be good science behind everything, uh, the patterns aren't necessarily locked in stone that you don't know exactly um, what's happening and why every year. And so some years you're just not going to know where the predictability is going to be lower, um, but it's hard to know that at the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. So, So that's one problem. The other problem for skiers, and this is much more relevant, is that even if you predict uh, accurately, and this is a big if. But if you do predict accurately a seasonal snow total um, or the amount above or below average the temperatures are, that doesn't necessarily help ha- help you find really good snow conditions because on the average over a winter, uh, that's not how we ski. We ski on a daily basis, and uh, that means we need to time snowstorms. Uh, hopefully, avoid rainstorms or periods of warm weather or high pressure where there's not a whole lot of snow. Um, and so even if you can predict that the season will be 20% above normal snowfall, you can't tell somebody that, hey, the last week in December or uh, early February is going to be good. Most of the time, that's, I mean, if you think seasonal predictions are hard, uh, predicting, you know, kind of specific weeks or times of a, a year mm-hmm. is, is basically impossible. So.
0: so so, if we can't do it at the beginning of the season, yep. how how long or how far ahead of time do we need to wait until you can accurately forecast a snowstorm?
1: Yeah, so I, I usually give people this rule of thumb, which is what I live by as well. And there's no secrets up my sleeve. Like what I what I say is how I chase powder as well. So um, I would say that at the seven to ten day out range, um, you can get a feel, a pretty good feel for active versus not active, um, and so you don't want to be looking at any details really of the forecast, like timing on a certain day or a certain temperature or amount of snow. But usually seven to 10 days out, you have a pretty good idea uh, if there's going to be an upcoming interesting weather pattern, but with snow and storms possible, or if it looks pretty dry uh, with high pressure. So um, seven to 10 days, you're kind of getting an inkling of what's going to happen. At around five-ish days, four to five-ish days, I like to be able to start locking in timing-ish. Um, you can kind of pinpoint certain days and have a decent clue if, hey, are we talking about a couple little small storms, potentially a big storm, something like that. So the details mm-hmm. are still iffy at four to five days. Um, but you can start to, to hone in on it a little bit. And what, uh, what I tell people at four to five days is that's the time when you want to start clearing your calendar of meetings. Um <laughs> So that's, you know, or just block something out so somebody doesn't schedule it. Uh, that's You just want to kind of give yourself the benefit of the doubt that, hey, if it does turn out that that five-day forecast looks good, uh, you're you're able to take advantage. Um, but it's really not until, I'd say right around two days, sometimes three, but right around two to three days, uh, that I start having a decent bit of confidence around, is this going to be a powder day? How much snow? Uh, where's the best snow going to fall? And so... That's when I usually tell people, even if you've cleared your calendar about five days out, uh, two to three days out is when you want to start really layering it on, like you're really coming down with the flu. Uh, (laughs) Starting to feel under the weather. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Because that's when you know, like, hey, if I start now, uh, then everybody in a day or two really is going to believe I'm feeling terrible. And then when I'm out, uh, in three days, then uh, then I have a really good excuse.
0: Right, right. Until everybody finds this out, and <laughs> it's two days ahead of time. Oh, you're, you're starting to get sick because of Joel Gratz's forecasting technique, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I've heard from a lot of people um, here in Colorado, and I'm sure it's similar with our other forecasters elsewhere well around the country. That uh, usually when my when our forecast comes out. And uh, in a morning, maybe two or three days out, and we're calling a certain powder day. It's kind of a rush for people who work at the same company to try to uh, like outsmart each other and take the day off. Like if they all can't leave, if somebody has to stay, like they somebody you know they're trying to like take the day off uh, before somebody else, so they can ensure that they're out of the office.
0: Excellent. How how did you have the idea to start Open Snow? First of all, tell, I gave our listeners a little bit of an overview. of of open snow, but tell us a little bit more about exactly what you do and then, and then also when you founded it.
1: Yeah. Well, I, uh, God, the idea probably started in 1985 when I went skiing for the first time, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So for any East coast listeners, uh, I grew up skiing outside of, um, outside of Philadelphia up at Shawnee mountain in, uh, in the Poconos. So that was my, that was my first taste of skiing, but it, for most meteorologists, we get hooked. From a certain weather event early in our lives, sometimes it's a hurricane, uh, sometimes it's a flood, uh, other times it's a snowstorm, a tornado. Uh, but this is this is not uh, altogether uncommon for a meteorologist for most meteorologists to know from a very early age that this is what they want to do. Um, very few of us go to college undecided uh, for a major. We, That's very
0: we, interesting.
1: Yeah, we know it and we know it early too. And, and it's usually not even high school. It's middle school. It's elementary school. We're just fixated. On weather, so I I grew up outside of, outside of Philadelphia, and I was fixated on the weather. I watched uh, this is kind of pre-internet. Uh, I'm not that old, but kind of you know late 80s, early 90s, and uh, I was watching the Weather Channel. I'd watch all three local newscasts because um, they did the weather at slightly different times after the hour, so I could catch all of them. Um, I was that guy, right? Like I got a <laughs> I got a weather station on my roof that my dad put up, so. Um, I knew from an early age this is what I wanted to do. And I love snow because I love skiing. Uh, and I would get uncontrollably excited about snow. I would wake up uh, before my parents to shovel um, to make a fire in a wood burning stove uh, to ensure that school was closed. Um, and then I would shovel again. I mean, it was ridiculous, <laughs> right? So fast forward, and uh, I did the insurance company gig, but I was here in Colorado. And I loved skiing powder. Uh, I didn't get the chance to do that back east and had no idea what that was like. But uh, coming out here, it was uh, just the first couple of experiences were eye-opening, and I, w- I was hooked on powder. Um, and that's coming from an ex-racer and ski instructor. So, um, so I would travel around the state with friends, and we'd go ski the best snow we could find. But there was a problem. And the problem was that many of the forecasts that I was looking at were very, very bad. Um, <laughs> or and maybe that's not exactly right, but they weren't very good consistently. And um, so here's the impetus. Uh, there's really two for open snow, the impetus for open snow. Mm-hmm. The first thing was that I was at Vail, and I think it was my second year that I was here in Colorado. We skied just an incredibly right. good powder day, just just perfect powder. And uh, I was uh, talking to a, a friend of mine's uncle who had lived in the Vail Valley for 30 years, and he and he went there to to uh, ski bum, actually, and then started a very successful business and figured out a way to both ski bum and have a good business. So wow. good role model. Yeah. Um, but he he and I were talking after this after the day of skiing and he said, hey, do you think tomorrow is going to be another powder day? And I said, no, no, no. I've, I've looked at my models uh, online and uh, no, it's going to clear out. We're done. And he looked at me, and he kind of just looked up at the clouds, and the top of the mountain was still obscured uh, in snow and clouds. He said, no, no, it's going to blow around. going to be another six inches of snow, but with the wind, it'll feel like another foot in spots, and tomorrow will be a good day. And I said, well, ha, 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 you local guy with no weather experience or knowledge, right? Uh, I don't think you're correct. I'm going to drive home. And uh, and home was back in Boulder, about two hours away. And of course, I uh, I leave Vale, come up over Vale Pass, and it's dumping, just dumping <laughs> snow. And of course, the next day was a great powder day that I did not ski. So that really made me mad. Um, and then there was one more thing that pushed me over the edge, which was I believe it was in '05. Uh, I was skiing in uh, Breckenridge, and it was right around Thanksgiving. And Breckenridge had reported about six inches of snow. Uh, a pretty good day, especially for early or, or late November, early in the season. And we had a fun day. It was uh, it was fun to be out there, good conditions. And I was driving home, and I got a call from a friend of mine, uh, also uh, an East Coaster who was working at Steamboat. And uh, she said that uh, I should have come to Steamboat because she skied, uh, quote, booby-deep snow, end quote, <laughs> And, and she's normal size, right? Like she's, you know, five, 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 six, whatever. (laughs) Um, So booby deep snow is quite a bit of snow. Um, it's not, you know, of course when you're skiing, you're kind of crouching down a little bit. So it wasn't, you know, five feet of snow, but, um, but it was close over two days, over 48 hours. They had steamboat had gotten 48, 48 Um, inches of snow. Yeah, it was huge. It was, I mean, that, and that's not necessarily typical, but it happened, um, and so I was livid, right, because Steamboat is only about an hour and a half from Breckenridge. If I had been able to forecast that, you know, no offense to Breck, but I would have gone where there was more snow, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is Steamboat. So that just pushed me over the edge. I was mad that there was no skier-specific local source of weather information um, in Colorado. And I was in a unique position to do something about it um, because I had – degree in meteorology and uh love snow
0: so you know, we always hear about entrepreneurial successes coming after huge failures and people yeah. <laughs> say it fell flat on my face in your case it's that you missed the powder joel
1: <laughs> that's yeah you got it and uh i mean as anybody knows when it, especially it's not just when you miss the powder, but when you know somebody else who didn't mm-hmm. miss Makes the powder. Worse. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> um, so that was that was what drove me to uh, to do something about
0: it. Very neat. I want to figure out a little bit more about the analysis that you use at Open Snow because there are obviously other weather forecasting sites out there. Like you yep. mentioned, we got weather.com, right? Weatherbug, all yep. of those. First of all, I don't know. I think you're probably allowed to say this, but are there any sites out there that you would just tell the listeners quit looking at those right now?
1: (laughs) Um, No. And I I would say uh, for if you're just looking for a two or three day forecast for a high temperature for your local city, you know, like what you're going to wear tomorrow, Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, they're all going to be really close. They're all going to be fine. And some of these weather sites claim, oh, we're, we're more accurate here or or this. And, and when you look at the statistics, a lot of times you're talking about a few percentage points more in accuracy. And I don't know about you, but I can't tell the difference between 72 and 71 degrees. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just don't know. Or even, you know, 23 or 24 degrees. So if you're just looking to kind of what's the weather going to be tomorrow on a relatively tranquil day and I need to see... Uh, what the temperatures are going to be, it, it's all fine. The challenges uh, come uh, when you get into mountainous terrain. And there are, there are all sorts of challenges with weather, um, and we'll talk about some of them probably over the next uh, mm-hmm. couple of minutes. But mountains throw a real wrench um, in, uh, in the forecasting models. And so this is kind of the unique advantage is um, to forecast mountain weather you know, need to know all of the subtleties of the mountains, where the mountains are, where the valleys are, um, which wind directions favor certain mountains, mm-hmm. and these are things that are just not quite baked in to the computer weather models just yet. Um, these models have improved in accuracy a tremendous amount over the last couple of decades, even since I, I went to school at Penn State between '99 and 2003, even between then and now, and it's 2014 now, um, the models have improved tremendously, but... Uh, where they still struggle, is in the mountains because they just don't quite have the high enough resolution, uh, for the most part, to depict each mountain peak and each mountain valley. So they kind of smooth out the mountains as a whole, as like this big block uh, mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of earth. Uh, but you lose the subtle features, and the subtle features are, especially in the bigger mountains, are what drive the snowfall. So I like to give people the analogy, when people ask me all the time on the chairlift, and I tell them what I do, and they're like, oh, cool, but I just look at the you know the radar. I just look at weather.com, and I, I, I tell them that all of these other sites are like a general practitioner, like your family doctor, um, whereas I am like the specialist. And God forbid you should ever need a knee specialist, but uh, I'm that type of person, and that's what we do. So um, much like you wouldn't go to your family doctor if you needed to have your knee repaired, um, that's kind of what I tell people is from a skiing standpoint – uh, I know exactly what you need to do and you're kind of going to a specialist um, when you come to us because all we do uh, is forecast snow in big mountains. I really don't look at the forecast for for Denver or for Grand Junction or for Chicago or for New York City um, or any of these other locations. Um, we just focus on mountain snowfall.
0: Very specialized and very cool hearing you say this my high school biology teacher always used to say this thing he said being a forecaster is the only job where you can be wrong the majority of the time and still keep your job and that kind of bothers me and I think it bothers me now more because I don't think it's true anymore You, you talked about the advancements over the last 10 years how how accurate are you and these other sites I guess
1: Ah oh, well, it doesn't just bug you that phrase. Mm-hmm. It 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 bugs me. Now now that said, um, I laugh it off every. And uh, for any listeners out there, when you say that to a meteorologist, you you think you're probably being kind of funny. It and hurts, boy. huh? Like, well, I, not just her, It's Like trust me, it is the thousandth time. I've heard that, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not – I mean I don't mind if you make fun. Like, hey, we're not perfect all the time. Absolutely poke that us for that. But uh, you know, come up with something better. Uh, well, <laughs> that's, that's all I ask. More
0: creative, be, yeah.
1: Exactly. Just be unique. Um, so here's – and here's a really interesting book. For anybody who's interested in um, not necessarily the technical aspect of weather but just a really good story of uh, the science of weather and where it's come from over the last 50 years – Uh, check out a book called warnings, uh, like a weather warning warnings uh, by a guy named Mike Smith. Uh, he tells the story of weather science since the fifties and sixties. And to put this in perspective in the late sixties and early seventies, uh, warning or predicting a tornado was thought to be impossible. Just, I mean, just, just flat out impossible. Like you, you would get laughed at when people would suggest that we should start doing something like this. Um, and now 40 years later, Almost every tornado is warned now it 's not perfect, of course, there are warnings when there are no tornadoes uh, and, and things like that. Some have more lead time than others but just just imagine that you 've gone with, within four decades um, one generation from a time when people were, lived in fear at night that a tornado would strike without warning. Nobody would know until the next morning that the town was destroyed until now when we can actually forecast almost every tornado or every storm that's capable of producing uh, a tornado. So that kind of puts in perspective how far weather science has come and uh, what was difficult to make a one- or two-day forecast before. We can now make five- and six-day forecasts relatively reliably, and even though the details might not be exactly right of a big nor'easter in five days or a big powder day uh, along the west coast, you still have an inkling. You understand that something is happening. Something is coming to kind of watch out for that, and um, that's just remarkable. I mean, that that's just a, a crazy uh, good improvement over over four decades, which um, uh, is very short <laughs> short amount of time when uh, when you're improving the science that much.
0: That, that is fantastic. I'm wondering going forward. I mean, so we've seen so much improvement in 40 years, but we still do encounter a lot of problems in the fact that when we see these devastating hurricanes or tornadoes or uh, earthquakes with tsunamis, there isn't quite enough time sometimes to to get people evacuated. Do you think this will evolve in the next 40 years?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and just to just to clarify, so the earthquake and the tsunami—I mean, that's a kind of non-weather geophysical right, yeah, yeah, event. So yeah. I can't I can't talk about that very much. Um, there is some earthquake prediction that uh, people are trying, but it's it's definitely a very new science. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to weather, I, I guess you can think of the uh, the challenges around uh, these big events being twofold. Uh, perhaps fifty percent is science, and perhaps fifty percent is not science. And his communication. Mm, um, wow. and so let me give you uh, kind of that example. Hurricane Katrina, uh, which in 2005 went uh, into the Mississippi coast and had a big impact on New Orleans, was almost perfectly forecast uh, two to three days in advance. It was I, I mean, I remember this because I was actually working for the insurance company at the time. and the, the two to three-day National Hurricane Center forecast was almost perfect. Um, uh, it, it, and like plenty good enough to evacuate the people that need to be evacuated Um, but the challenge is is in communicating the certainty you have or meteorologists have in the forecast and communicating that in a way that local officials will understand and uh, can can understand how to take action on and I don't blame local officials for being skeptical oftentimes of dire weather forecasts because especially now or even over the last five years Everybody with a Facebook account is talking about, you know, the next two-inch snowstorm like Armageddon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, k- k- stay tuned here, folks, you know, for the latest, whether it's going to be two or three inches, right? So everybody is kind of on this on this edge of every storm seems to be the last storm of, uh, of Earth's time. Um, so I understand how people try to filter that information and, and oftentimes don't heed uh, when there are true extreme events. But um, that communication aspect... From a meteorologist to a local official talking about the uncertainty or the certainty of the forecast and uh, encouraging them to take action based on that, that is at least half, if not more, of the warning challenge. Um, So that's that part. And it's unfortunate what happened in New Orleans, not that you could have evacuated everybody Mm -hmm. or or known that all of the levees or that so many levees would break, but you at least knew that, hey, (laughs) this is a serious storm. You know these things are highly likely with a serious storm, Um, and it was really Mayor Nagin's lack of um, action kind of during the the two- to three-day window um, that that hurt uh, a a lot of the preparedness from the city, and he didn't really take action until a a little bit too late. So that's the communication aspect. The science aspect, um, however, is also very difficult, and you're dealing with extreme events, which... Uh, means that the computer models that we use are good about 90% of the time because 90% of the time, or even more, 95% of the time, 99% of the time, the weather behaves as it always had. We can look back in the last 20 or 30 years of history, and there's a storm that's kind of come through like the the future possible storm that we're looking at. But every now and again, the variables in the atmosphere come together, and uh, they interact in such a way that produces – a storm that just is kind of at that 1%, like we, we rarely ever, ever see it. And the computer models just do not, at this point, um, do well with predicting that. They just don't think that all those variables can come together and produce such uh, a monstrous storm. Mm. So uh, there's a scientific challenge there, uh, for sure. There was a big flooding here in Colorado um, last September, September 2013, where Boulder got... Uh, a year's worth of precipitation in about 36 hours, um, almost 20 inches of of precipitation. And um, so earlier that week, the computer models forecasted a couple inches of precipitation, which to all of us forecasters are like, wow, that's that's a lot mm-hmm. for September. I mean, that alone would have been almost record-breaking. But we couldn't know from those models that the atmosphere would have achieved such a, an outlier mode, as one of my friends and yeah. investors says to bring us that much. So uh, it's half communication uh, and the warning challenge and and still half half science for sure.
0: Wow, very cool. We'll get to your gear recommendation now, Joel. We ask all of our guests for a gear recommendation. And like you said, you're a passionate skier and outdoors enthusiast yourself. Give our listeners a gear recommendation.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I'm going to uh, take uh, maybe a duck out of this one, take an easy one, but... uh, uh, wait, 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 wait! It is so important. Um, so uh, last year I was the first year I ever skied on Dinafit um, bindings, mm-hmm. which are at a tech binding. They don't look like a normal binding, and they're generally used for backcountry users um, that want to skin up hills. Um, but the really interesting thing is they weigh very, very little because they're they're made for really going uphill, but have great downhill performance. And that combined with new skis I got last year, which also weighed a, a tiny, tiny amount compared to previous skis. Uh, and they were made by um, Wagner Wagner Custom Skis, who was just a buddy of mine. But the combination of these things, it was uh, it, it removed so much weight from my setup that I was able to ski longer without stopping. And not just for the day, but each individual run as well. I could ski a, huh. an entire powder run without getting without my legs getting super tired just due to the weight i can move my skis more quickly around trees or around rocks or something like that more quickly because they just didn't weigh as much so um that's my recommendation of it's not just about you know the performance of a a carving ski or a binding but god when things weigh less you can just do more and get less tired, which is really cool.
0: That's fantastic. And then also, not drinking as many beers will probably take some weight off too. Yeah, so. that's just harder <laughs> the, to manage, yeah, right? Exactly. Like
1: it's, uh, it, that's tough. Yeah, you got to figure
0: out what's more important. So yeah, exactly. anyway, <laughs> we will throw the weight on your Meister profile page. Yes. Thank you so much, Joel. To, to wrap it up, I just want you to blow our listeners' minds I always like when experts like you throw out some sort of crazy statistic that we've never known or that we never thought we would know, but now we know. Sure. So give us just, just a random stat or fact that's going to blow our mind.
1: Yep, yeah, I'm going to give you one that, that still confounds me to this day. Okay. This is going to drive me until I figure this thing out. <laughs> uh, remember, uh, this is a good way to, to start and end the podcast very similarly. Mm-hmm. Um, Remember I was talking about that 48 inches in 48 hours of Steamboat? Mm -hmm. So I call this the Steamboat Surprise. And Steamboat, more than any other place in Colorado, can have a setup, a weather setup, where they get five, eight times more snow than any model was predicting or anybody else within 100 miles gets, any other mountain. (laughs) And it still confounds me. The only thing that I've figured out, the only commonality... Between these storms and they usually happen maybe once a year once every other year is that you have a temperature at the top of the mountain right around 10 or 15 degrees fahrenheit and you have a wind that's out of the west um and that is common to all of these all of these situations there was another time two huh. years ago where they got 23 inches overnight <laughs> definitely not forecastable. <laughs> absolutely not um So all of these situations, the temperature at the mountaintop was about 10 to 15 degrees, which is great for for creating snowflakes. And the wind was from the west, which uh, hits steamboat square on and is forced to rise over the mountain, um, which helps to produce snow. But here's the kicker. Here's the mystery, is that this combination of temperature and wind and moisture happens many times during a season. Why is it just once or twice that you get the steamboat surprise? I do not know.
0: Whoa. There's the riddle. Steamboat surprise. That is fantastic and great, great marketing for Steamboat as well. <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> I mean, they call it, they go with champagne powder, but I, I just like to go with steamboat. Yeah, yeah.
0: very alliterative, very good. Thank you so much, Joel, for joining us today on Mountain Meister. It has been awesome having you.
1: Oh, it's great. Uh, I, mean, I can't believe that you're, uh, you're actually still listening to me talk about weather. I'm like <laughs> cutting this off because we could keep going.
0: I've enjoyed every <laughs> second of it. For the listeners, if you have enjoyed it as much as I have, go out and go to the App Store on your iPhone, type in Open Snow, and you can find the app there. Joel, I assume you're on Android as well.
1: We are on Android, we are on the internet, we'll do smoke (laughs) signals, however we can communicate.
0: Yes, exactly, opensnow.com, check it out. Thanks so much, Joel, it's been great having you.
1: Absolutely, good to be here.
0: Well, that certainly was interesting. Always an opportunity to learn on this show. Love it, love it, love it. Thank you, Joel, for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you, MeisterFan, for listening. And as a token of our appreciation, let's give you a free audiobook on us. No obligation. Sign up. It's a free month, free book. You listen to it very similar to the way that you listen to podcasts, except not on the podcast app. This is on audible.com. Again, free one-month trial, courtesy of Mountain Meister. The link, you have to use this link Otherwise, I don't get credit for it. Go to our website. The link is right on the homepage. Per usual, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast. Hopefully, you're on some sort of vacation or you're finding time to enjoy yourself. And if not, that's why we're here. I am your host, Ben Shank, and you have been listening to Mountain Meister.